Good evening, and uh, welcome to what I'm sure will be a fun and lively uh, conversation uh, with Jody Cantor about her new book uh, on the Obamas. I'm Sarah Churchwell, and uh, I was supposed to remind you of what the Twitter hashtag is, but it's completely gone out of my head. Does anybody know what the Twitter hashtag is? Is it up here? Oh, it's right there, LSE Obamas. Mm -hmm. So apparently you're encouraged to, to tweet. And, uh, and so what the, um, the format is going to be that we're, we're going to uh, chat a little bit about the book, and, and hopefully Jody will tell us some stories, some inside scoop on, uh, on reporting at the White House. And then we'll open it up uh, to the floor. I'm sure you all have lots of questions uh, that you'd like to ask as well. Um, so I wanted to begin, I mean, I, I really enjoyed this book, and I, and I enjoyed it particularly because it struck me as being so fair-minded, and as, uh, particularly as an American, and anybody who watches the American political scene will know that it has become incredibly toxic on both sides of the political aisle, and so I was reading this book thinking, well, this is, this is so refreshingly kind of fair-minded and dispassionate, and seems, you know, willing to criticize, but also, you know, willing to praise, and, and, and I thought, well, that's really uh, a kind of... Uh, useful corrective to, to bring some civil discourse back into the American political conversation. And, but I seem to have, have been slightly unusual in my reaction, because when you look at how a lot of the American press is talking about this book, it's as if we read different books. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was saying to, to Jody beforehand that I felt actually reading some of what the, the media in America was saying uh, about the book was as if they were talking about a phantom book um, that wasn't actually the book on the pager. So I was wondering if you could say something about, um, and I don't want to, I don't want to seed the conversation too much, sure. um, but about what your perception has been about what their about what their objections have been and what the book is that you were trying to write. Sure. Well, th first of all, thank you uh, for being here with me, and thank uh, all of you for coming. It has been a really interesting experience with both, I think, good and bad um, aspects, but. What happened is that the book did make a lot of news in the States, and that happened really before people could read the book because it was only available on January 10th. So there were a couple of days where there was all this coverage on cable TV with people opining about the book. And I could pretty much tell from the conversations that most of those people hadn't read it. Um, and so, uh, so on the one hand, as an author, I mean, it, you know, no complaints about uh, getting people to notice your work. On the other hand, you know, my goal really uh, everywhere I go has been to ask people to actually look at the book, actually look at the book, actually look at the book. It's the, a remarkable request. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, there have been some good aspects to it, which is that one, one positive thing that has happened is that, <laughs> uh, is that it's been embraced uh, uh, by some people on, on both sides of the aisle. Usually political books in the states are either kind of liberal books or conservative books for the reason you mentioned. And, you know, I had great um, interviews with both Sean Hannity and John Stewart uh, about the book. So that was terrific. And they each kind of found things that they wanted to focus on. Um, it was, uh, you know, but, but, but I guess things got so ridiculous that it was actually John Stewart who, um, who, who has a strange kind of authority in the U.S., as, as many of you know, because it's funny that a comedian, uh, you know, carries all this sort of news authority, and he called me on the show, and he said, Jody Cantor, I am 
so mad at you, I am outraged. You've written a book uh, in which you know Michelle Obama is portrayed as a well-rounded human being who is the moral center of the Obama administration. How dare you? So that was so that was pretty funny. Um, but I think that there's another reason why there's been a lot of confusion, which is that I think there is a group of women who we have um, kind of a very confused idea about. Um, in the culture, and it's not necessarily, I mean, uh, there are definitely issues with African-American mm. women being stereotyped, but the group of women that I'm talking about are first ladies, mm. because, you know, the truth about first ladies is that they all have a lot of steel in their spines, and the classic model of, you know, the contemporary first lady is of a woman who presents a very polished, smiling, gracious image to the public that, you know, is not wrong and is not a lie, but behind the scenes is often very vigilant, very watchful. You know, Barbara Bush, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Reagan, Michelle Obama, all considered by, you know, the White House staff of the time um, in some ways tougher, more exacting, more vigilant mm -hmm. than their husbands. Um, so it's almost like that's a part of the job requirement mm -hmm. of being first lady. And there are times in the story when Michelle Obama is dissatisfied, but first of all, by the standards of her predecessors, uh, you know, the sort of strength of her reaction is very mild because uh, she doesn't even begin to equal uh, some of her predecessors in. Uh, in sort of how she reacts. But also, I guess the thing that was really important for me in reporting the book and talking to her aides was always finding the motivation for the times when she's dissatisfied. And, you know, the main thing to remember about her in this book is that she is the keeper of the flame of the Obama presidency. She's really focused on the reasons he ran in the first place. She doesn't have a lot of patience for what you know, inside the White House, they often refer to as Washington noise or Washington games. And, you know, there's nothing in the book about her being like manipulative or meddling or unreasonable or any of, yeah. I think, those sort of pejorative terms that are sometimes applied to first ladies. The, the times when, the time when she's most frustrated is after Scott Brown wins in Massachusetts. And first of all, that's a huge political error by the White House team. But also part of the reason he's won is that Obama, to pass health care, has made these kind of dodgy deals in the Senate, including the Nebraska one that's very famous, that basically looked like a giveaway uh, to Nebraska in exchange for votes. And it made Obama look like an ordinary politician, right? It made him look like he was doing backroom deals. And that was never, you know, and that, White House aide said, was really anathema to the First Lady because she she really is kind of the idealist there. Mm. I was. It's interesting when you do talk about uh, Michelle's. I mean, the word I would have used, and I think it's a word that that you may or may not actually use, but I, I'm pretty confident you'll be comfortable with, is frustration. Mm -hmm. um, and that and that one gets the sense that in a, in a way, what makes her so frustrated is that there is another character in the book, which is the White House itself as this environment that is so restrictive. And, and there are lots of surprising, at least they surprise me, um, uh, things that you reveal about the White House, that like there's only one landline in the, in the private apartments, and they have dodgy internet. And you know that there's no private entrance for yeah. the kids as they come in from school. They're walking past tour groups. And yeah. you know, all kinds of things where you think, how do people actually live in this place? Yes, and I think that to talk about that is sort of 
like um, the conventional wisdom in Washington is that yes living in the White House is really hard but you're not supposed to talk about it and you're not supposed to complain about it because you know God forbid you as a leader should um, express some sort of ingratitude or discontent when of course there are so many privileges um, of life there and I don't I don't buy that conventional wisdom I think this life is really hard and it's getting much much harder I mean only two presidencies ago Bill Clinton could jog around in public parks do you remember like the photos of him like wearing the shorts uh, in, in, in Washington parks um, so so that's out of the question now and a lot of it has to do with September 11th and the threat of domestic terrorism, not to mention the rise of, you know, camera phones and whatnot. And the Obamas went, you know, and, and to me, the reason why it has real real weight and substance are for two reasons. One is that, I mean, as all of you remember, the Obama claim in 2008 basically translated to, we're regular people. You know, we may have gone to fancy schools and we may have had a lot of opportunity, but we are neighborhood people people, we pump our own gas, we are not these DC creatures of green rooms, you know, who kind of don't exist in the real world, and, and therefore, you know, we're going to sort of represent the American people better, and, and, and so then to put them in this environment is, is really strange. The thing I always think about is Obama's Blackberry, because here's the guy who revolutionized online campaigning in 2008, I mean, literally changed the way a candidate has contact with voters, and he gets to the White House, and we, I say we as a country, we take his way, away his BlackBerry for legal and uh, security reasons. We give him this like hack-proof military facsimile that's not as good as the real thing, and he's only allowed to email 10 or 15 people. So if we were in an executive training seminar, we would say, are we giving this individual the tools he needs to succeed? You know, And, and why is it that a 17-year-old can have a BlackBerry and communicate with whoever he wants and the President of the United States can't? And, and that's like the weird combination of power and really powerlessness in the presidency. And then the second reason I think it's important is that I think it's connected. I think there is a connection between the isolation of the White House and what we see happen in this presidency. Because Obama does lose some of the electric connection that he had with many Americans during the 2008 campaign. And the issue with something like health care reform, to me, you know, as a reporter, it's I'm not interested in making a judgment on whether health care reform was, you know, the right thing to do or not, because the truth is that we're not really going to know uh, for a couple of, of years what the outcome of that program is. But, you know, to, to me, the most powerful critique of that is that he kind of failed to take the country with him, right? That he, he really failed to persuade people that this was the best thing to do and move people along with him. And so, how much harder is that to do in a situation where you're totally isolated and cut off? Mm. And as you say, where we also are not permitting them to have a certain range of emotions, where it's anathema to hear that Michelle Obama was frustrated that people are then going to accuse you of attacking her. But you know what? It's weird because when my excerpt was first published and before like the kind of din <laughs> really began, I was getting all of these high fives, especially from liberal Democrats and African-American women. And their response to the original excerpt in the New York Times was, we always knew that Michelle Obama had our back, <laughs> you know? Because she did want to, her husband to, she, it's not, I don't want to place her motivation, I don't want to remove 
her husband's motivation and substitute it with hers because I think that's another bad female cliche, right? That, that she is really in charge of everything. But she backed him on health care reform. Uh, she backed him on immigration reform. And so she really is the person in the administration who is more in tune with what liberal Democrats wanted out of this administration. Is there, there are a couple of stories that you tell that I really enjoyed where she's very clear about what her motivation is. That great story about, um, which maybe you should uh, tell everyone who hasn't yet had the chance to buy your book, which of course you will have the opportunity to do after this conversation. Um, but that great story about uh, appearing on the cover of Vogue and the, her, the advisors yeah. were worried that it would send the wrong message. Well, I like this story because because to me, it's not, it's really not clear who is right and who is wrong. Um, so during the transition, Michelle Obama gets invited to appear on the cover of Vogue, and her her team of advisors, who are all female, meet to discuss it. And the group splits, and it splits by race, which is very uncomfortable because it's a very close knit group of women. And the African-American women in the group, including Michelle Obama, really want her to do the cover because, you know, part of the reason the Obamas ran in the first place was to be role models. Mm -hmm. They were very explicit about that in their planning meetings. They thought it was part of what would separate an Obama presidency from a John Edwards presidency, from a Hillary Clinton presidency. Um, you know, and they and in that meeting, they talked about the, the value of young women seeing an African-American first lady on the cover of Vogue, you know, so iconic, et cetera, et cetera, and the message that would send to kids. Some of the white advisors were more concerned about the economic environment. You know, this was, you know, this was really the period when the American economy seemed like it might be sliding off a cliff and a public anger and resentment were building about um, bonuses and foreclosures and uh, and job losses and so those advisors were worried that it was sending the wrong message because Vogue is really like a pure luxury magazine. It costs five dollars on the newsstand, which is you know about what some people pay for lunch, and. You know, and they also said to her, Michelle Obama, you're a person of substance. Do you really want to sort of be known as America's number one fashionista? And I think what's interesting is that she did the cover of Vogue and there was really no criticism. You know, it was a very kind of mild piece and she didn't wear, I mean, she wore expensive clothes, but not, you know, she didn't wear Chanel. Um, and, but, but, but that points to something that she has to face in the White House again and again, which are, First of all, so many of so many choices that are personal, even things like whether to take a makeup artist on a trip, become subject to debate among advisors given the economic climate. And the other thing is that it shows us what a double-edged sword the role model job is and, and what a heavy burden it is to carry because on the one hand, it's, it, we all know how inspiring the Obama presidency is to so many people. Uh, because of the barriers it's broken. But then on the other hand, because they're role models, it really is like everything they do is is up for scrutiny, and that's a painful position to be in. One of the things that I thought was really uh, revealing, well, it was interesting was how revealing, um, how many of the revealing stories about them circled around 
competition and particularly <laughs> sports. There are lots of great little stories about Obama trying to improve his bowling score and, and Michelle insisting that the girls play you know different sports and and I was wondering if you think that there's that that because I, I couldn't remember another presidency where that was this kind of leitmotif that came out of it. It's one of the ways that makes them human but it also does seem to show up uh, as, I, as I said their competitiveness. Well see I, I'm glad you picked up on that but I think it's it is something that's true of presidents. I, I mean, I've, I write about, you know, not just the Obamas, but I've written about lots of different politicians for the New York Times, and I'm really convinced that one of the things that makes politicians different from the rest of us is that they are so competitive. It's scary. You know, and the story, there's so many stories like this, you know, the Kennedy brothers and how competitive they were with each other, mm -hmm. you know, the Romney boys mm -hmm. and their father, they do this, like, fake Olympics called, like, it's called, like, the Mitt Olympics or the Romney Olympics <laughs> or something. Um, and, the, you know, these are the, it, the people who tend to run for the president. The Bush brothers. The Bush, right. The people who tend to run for president are, like, those people who can't lose a game of Scrabble. <laughs> you know, there, there, there is something, there is something about, about that makeup. With Obama in particular, though, it is really strong. And the, the thing I always think about are his birthday parties. His birthday parties are kind of a motif in the book. And we see um, what he does for his birthday, you know, his first three years in office. And each party is in some way indicative of kind of what's going on with him and his transformation and the presidency. And the first uh, summer, Mrs. Obama surprises him uh, with a weekend with all of his best male buddies at Camp David. And, you know, it's really cool because it's hard to fool the, the president of the United States, but she really gets the whole White House in on the act, and they manage to really shock and surprise him. But... Um, the the president's best friend Marty Nesbitt kind of puts together the program, and like what do what is what do Barack Obama and Marty Nesbitt uh, like to do? You know, on a random summer weekend, they like to compete, uh, and so they set up this really elaborate tournament with all of these different sports and their tallies and running totals and. Um, uh, and they, they compete in like, I mean, they compete in shuffleboard even. It's not just like basketball and bowling. And I do think it really says something about these guys who in some way can never let go, right? Can never, can never relax. Mm. But that also, it relates to something else that surprised me, which is how insular they are as a family and as a group. That is something you stress, I think, mm -hmm. frequently in the book, that they don't do any of the White House schmoozing. They don't do any they of do the... Some. Well, but I mean, it sounds like they do very, very minimal. Yeah. And, that, and that they're a very tight, close-knit group, a uh, yeah. tight-knit group. And that um, I, was, I was really struck by the... There's a, you have a little kind of throwaway line that Hillary Clinton said that they never invited the Clintons to dinner in the private apartments, which I have to say I thought was a little bit graceless. Well, it's funny. My editors at the Times reacted the same way. They thought that was amazing. Mm. You know what is another factoid about Obama and schmoozing that is very telling is that he sometimes does have uh, people to lunch in the little private dining room off the Oval Office, and a number of people told me something very striking, which is that the lunch does not begin with gossip. And in Washington, that is so unheard of. I mean, it, you know, I, I, I'm a political reporter. I do this myself. The ritual is you sit down for lunch with somebody, you have 10 minutes of gossip, and then you get 
to business. That's just like the way Washington works. And Obama... That's the way most people work, surely. It's the, most, most, <laughs> the way most people work. And Obama just really does not do... He really doesn't do small talk. And I think that what it gets at is that he is... You know, the, the, he... He has a, a complicated relationship with politics on so many levels. And I think that part of his difficulty as president has been that he really is a highly analytical person. And that, of course, has been a strength in his presidency. And yet it can sometimes be very frustrating. Like, do you remember during the debt ceiling crisis, he, there would be these news conferences, and he would get up at the podium, and he would basically say, not verbatim, but his basic message was, I cannot understand how, like, we cannot get Democrats and Republicans to sit down at the table and just do, like, a sort of negotiation and come up with a numerical compromise, which is what would be done in any kind of business situation among rational people. And, and But that's not how politics works, right? I mean, politics has, there are a lot of problems in the world that have kind of rational solutions on the table. Uh, you know, look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Everybody's known what the roadmap for peace is, you know, would look like for a decade. It's a political problem. You know, it can't be solved for that reason, and I think that's very hard for him. Mm. Uh, I, yeah, I think that that definitely comes through, and it was, it was something that I was thinking about because, of course, the, there is this question I think we all had as we watched his campaign was, you know, not just... The, the the you know the wonderful story of this rise from nowhere and uh, and of course it's the great American dream and the um, the the triumph of the will uh, to power to get slightly Nietzschean on it but I mean it was partly that and and yet there was also this sense of idealism and naivete that was driving it that it was grassroots and that it was populist and I have to say slightly cynically um, because I I come from Chicago. And uh, and Chicago, as as some of you may know, is is famously still the most politically corrupt city in America. It is unbelievably politically corrupt, and you can't grow up in Chicago and not know that. And uh, and I remember having a conversation soon after the election with an editor here at Newsnight. You know, mm -hmm. the Newsnight is. And um, so you know, a smart, plugged-in guy. And it was right after Obama had tried to get the Olympics for Chicago, and of course, Chicago lost to Rio. And he said to me, "Well, isn't it remarkable that?" Obama could have such hubris that he thought that, you know, now that he's won the election, he can do anything and he can even get the Olympics. And I said, I should, probably shouldn't say this on the record, but anyway, I'm going to. And I, and I said, hubris? Are you kidding? I thought it was payback. I mean, I just assumed yeah. it was payback because he had to have made deals because Chicago was supporting him. And remember that immediately after Obama got elected, Blagojevich got arrested for trying to sell his Senate seat and is now doing federal time with the previous Illinois governor, which, of course, we're all very proud of. Um, and, I, and I was wondering, I was thinking about that a lot as, as I was reading this because the Obama that comes out of your book is, I think, more of that naive politician that you were just describing, mm -hmm. who actually is, is stymied by politics as usual, by the cynicism and, dare I say, the corruption of some of the individuals that he's dealing with. And, isn't, and you suggest, I think, fairly late in the book, you said earlier that you don't think it's your job to kind of you know, make assessments or judgments about policy, but I think there are a couple moments where you, you at least I thought you were coming in and, and saying that he needs to roll up his sleeves and get into politics mm -hmm. and actually start right. doing it. And, and yet I was wondering where surely there must have always been that politician there to have gotten, surely you don't get to the White House right. 
as the you know as the Robert Redford you know the candidate film you know I mean it just doesn't work that way does well, it well well I think an interesting question you know as things began to head south in the Obama presidency a lot of people had the following debate in the US and maybe some of you had this thought um, yourselves people started saying did he ever believe that stuff yeah, in the yeah. first place mm -hmm. did he ever believe that he was going to be able to close Guantanamo Bay mm -hmm. or was it all just talk to get him elected you know did when he gave that speech in 2004 that really lit the spark of his national career where he said there's no red America there's no blue America there's just a United States of America you said we were purple right <laughs> so that so especially after the debt ceiling crisis and the rise of the Tea Party it really it does, that statement does look naive mm -hmm. in retrospect so people said was it all just talk and was Obama really a cold calculating politician who basically I mean who basically fed on people's idealism and hope and knew that they wanted to believe again and knew that he would never be able to deliver I don't think so mm. I think he believed it mm. just based on my reporting based on what people in the White House said based on um, his own frustrations uh, based on the sort of um, his own desire to live up to his campaign promises, which is a heavy burden we see him dealing with throughout the book. I think he really believed all that mm -hmm. stuff. And I think that, you know, I, 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 I think that, um, I think part of the essence of who he is it, is a belief that seemingly irresolvable things can be resolved. Mm -hmm. The, it, in, even to the extent that he thought he could have Rahm Emanuel as his exactly, chief of staff, exactly. uh, even though they're obviously, uh, and it, I thought it was interesting the way that you suggest that there was a real kind of division, in particular of philosophy, between Rahm Emanuel and Michelle, and that that was some of the tension in the early White House, which of course the White House is now busily disavowing, but you know, clearly. Yeah, although, you know, they, they, they don't, it's interesting because they don't disavow anything specific, mm. you know, they, they've used the kind of standard line of sort of distancing themselves from the book, but you know, Rahm Emanuel, David Axel, none of these people have come forward to say... Well, it would be hard for Rahm Emanuel to come forward and say, no, I'm not actually shouty and sweary. And right. I mean, yeah. Everybody knows Yeah, and that. also some of it is discussed on the record, like the scene where he offers his resignation, mm -hmm. you know, in mm -hmm. secret uh, to the president. You know, David Axelrod, who is really the bridge between the two men in the White House, discussed it on the record. So, um, yeah, no, I think, I think that's really, I think that's really true. And, and so part of what we see, you know, Obama's giving the State of the Union tonight, and part of the second act, I think, is that he does have to make some of those choices, right? I mean, that the whole red and blue America thing is kind of over with him. Like, mm -hmm. the, the, the promise of a bipartisan uh, presidency where people are going to get along in Washington, it's, it's gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, his strategy, basically, in the next year is going to be to run against the Republican Congress, mm. uh, you know, and and he's he's passed. I mean, and 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 I think some people in the de Democratic Party would tell you that uh, that's something he should have done a long time ago. Um, but it also means that we we're moving into this new stage where the original promise of the Obama presidency is pretty much gone, and he needs to come up with a new mm. a new ver a new mm. vision. Mm.
I was struck as I was, as I was, I think it was literally the day that I finished your book or, or soon afterwards, um, and it, it moves toward, as Rahm Emanuel leaves to go become mayor of Chicago, no, and again, no payback there, I'm sure. Um, and, <laughs> but then, who comes in as chief of staff but Bill Daly, who is the brother of Richard Daly, who has been mayor, uh, mayor of Chicago for 30 years, machine politics in, in Chicago. So the Daly family is now suddenly chief of staff, and, and you were suggesting that he might be, I, I think, if I if I read you correctly, um, that he would that he would be a useful uh, strategist for Obama because he's an old political hand and he knows how he knows how the game works, um, as any daily will, I'm sure. Um, but then, as I was finishing your book, he resigned. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, is that is that a sign of continued? Do you read that as a sign of continued turmoil in the White House that Obama can't get a, a chief of staff and an and an agenda and a, a you know and a message and unity uh, still? Yes, uh, not in I mean, the message is more unified and has been since Labor Day. I mean, the message since Labor Day, I mean, after really Democrats complaining for most of his term that the president did not have a clear economic message and a clear story he was telling Americans about the economic moment and what he was doing about it, they have they at least have had a coherent message, you know, since the fall, which is like the kind of we can't wait strategy, you know, Congress may do nothing, but we're going to continue to go out there and make the case for what we think will be a more economically just society. And that, you know, that's what he's expected to discuss tonight in the State of the Union as well. But the management of the White House has been an issue. I mean, one of the one of the things I do feel I uncovered in the book, and I think, I mean, and you know, it's 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 not surprising that the White House doesn't want anyone to report this. Is that everybody for a long time? People thought that Obama's group of advisors around him were very unified. You know, the the sort of saying went that the president surrounded himself by a close knit cluster of advisors who were mostly from Chicago and that the group was too insular and that they didn't talk to outsiders. And what I really discovered reporting the book is that the group was never united in the first place. There were always these strains within it and the president is not really, he's not an organization guy, didn't have a lot of management experience going into the White House, wasn't really fond of traditional structures. And, you know, by common consensus, you know, even among the people who work for him, has had trouble finding a chief of staff who is really sort of the correct match, which isn't to say that Rahm Emanuel and Bill Daley weren't each successful in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the, 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 the thing about this White House is that there have always been a lot of high-level advisors with a lot of power, like mm -hmm. Valerie Jarrett mm -hmm. and Pete Rouse, and uh, David Plouffe is still in the White House now. And so the chief of staff is not like the one centralized figure through whom every, everything flows. Who we know and love from the West Wing. We know how, that, we know how that's supposed to work, don't we? No, but, that, but, but also that, but that's where I think you have to be a little fair because being chief of staff, like being president, is a bit of an impossible job mm. nowadays. Mm. Yeah, and that, that, seems, that seems clear as well. I was thinking, except I've just gone blank on what the name of the phrase is, but at the beginning of his presidency, there was all that talk about, what's the Doris Kearns Goodwin, um, the Lincoln? Team of rivals. The team of rivals. Yeah. They, we don't hear about that anymore. Right. <laughs> We're no longer going to be surrounded by people who can all disagree and that will all be very productive and very useful. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and, and yet that, that, uh, that sense of, um, of a dysfunctional 
uh, uh, political system, it is, it is, I think, as, 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 I, as I opened by saying, as dispassionate and fair-minded as I found your book, it is unsettling to think that even the person who comes in to correct a dysfunctional system ends up with his own team being dysfunctional, and then you just have this kind of, uh, and it does seem to, to just keep breaking, you know, the strain is just cracking everything further and further to the point where, you know, you, you then write this book saying, well, here's what's happening, and it, and it, and it doesn't have any, you know, it is not a partisan book. It's not coming out right. saying you're not an apologist for the Obamas and you're not attacking the Obamas right. and you're trying to steer clear of policy. And yet they've managed to turn this into this uh, this controversial book where you are, you know, attacking the Obamas and all of that. As if as if we can no longer have a political any conversation about politics in America that is not combative and not divisive, in, whether it's inside the White House or the farthest reaches of a conversation about a book, you know, even in London, we, we have to be coming to grips with this question of the, of the partisan, and, and, but even when it's not, I mean, I, I, sorry, I'm misspeaking because that was partly what was interesting to me about this, is that the, the reaction, is, and as you said to your book, has, has not been partisan in that sense, it's just been kind of hostile. Not entirely. Not I'm not yeah, suggesting not, that not you haven't gotten some in, wonderful reviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so a lot of the reviews were good, and a lot of the reception on, on TV oh. and on the radio was terrific. But I guess I think the thing that's funny about it is that, you know, I don't want to, like, undercut my, you know, cool insider reporting. But the truth is the fact that not everything has been perfect in this presidency happened in plain sight, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, all of you saw it. So on the one hand, the behind the scenes is fascinating and important and I think we learn a lot about these two people and where this presidency might go because he may have four more years from it but you know on the other hand um, you know I've gotten messages from Democrats who said that reading the book was in some sense therapeutic mm. because they knew that there were things you know with, like with something like Guantanamo Bay I mean everybody knew that that didn't go as planned and so learning a little bit more about how that happened mm. you know is actually satisfying and the, and and also and the reassuring well and also the the thing is that the president does really come through to me as a really sincere person who mm. wants to do his best i mean even republicans when you know who criticize barack obama for folding a napkin the wrong <laughs> way you know the one thing they never say is that he's dishonest or that he's corrupt I've n I don't think I've ever heard any of them say that he doesn't want what's best for the country. And, and that quality came through very clearly to me in my reporting. Mm -hmm. It comes through very strongly in the book as well, and, but even more so about M Michelle. Um, yeah. That what we have here is actually a, a, remarkable, a remarkable partnership of two really extraordinary people. Um, and I, it was something I wanted to ask you about is you say in your acknowledgments um, that you, you thank your editor for, uh, I think, a four-year conversation mm -hmm. about, about gender, power, ambition, and something else that I'm forgetting. Public life yeah, or something, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I thought that was really interesting because that, the, the, and it was a, a, a phrase that I, that I used when I was writing about the book that, that it, to me it was a book, a biography of domestic politics, that it, in kind of every sense that we're talking mm -hmm. about domestic politics here. But there's a great story that you tell uh, where when you did interview the Obamas in the White House in 2009 where you asked her, uh, asked them, um, how do you achieve a marriage of equals when one of you is the president? And, and it's a great story. I wonder if you would just uh, sure, and I yeah. want to hear the noise because you described the noise but I want to hear what yeah. you heard her say a absolutely um, 
I was going in to interview the President and First Lady uh, about their marriage for the New York Times Magazine, and this was in the fall of 2009, and we were sitting in the Times Bureau um, uh, talking about my questions beforehand. A very nice thing about working at the New York Times is that you never really have to do anything alone because your colleagues um, will often help you prepare for things. And so I was sitting with Jeff Zeleny, who has covered the president for a long time, and we were talking through the questions, and you're always trying to kind of simplify them because you don't want a lot of verbiage, and you, especially with Obama, do not want, um, like you don't want a question that has a premise that he'll reject. That's <laughs> death because he'll just say, I reject the premise of your question. So it has to be a kind of, it has to be a premiseless question, so I, which is hard, can, can be really hard to ask. And so, um, so, so the question that we came up together, you know, this was one of like 10 or something, was how is it possible to have an equal marriage when one, when one person is president? And I asked both Obamas, and Michelle Obama made this noise like, Huh. Um, like, you know, to me it sounded as if she was glad that somebody had asked. Because remember that the president is treated like a king in the White House, and the First Lady is not treated the same way. I mean, just like, it, like even the number of kind of household staff attached to him is larger. The, the commotion when he walks through the hallways is larger. His plane is bigger. Like, they, like I can't tell you the kind of, um, I can't, you know, there, there is a bit of a royal aura that surrounds the president in the White House. And so um, I asked them that, and so the First Lady, you know, you know, kind of made her non-comment, and then did a very smart thing, which is she sat back and made him try to answer the question. <laughs> and he really couldn't. It took him like four tries. Like, he, like, he, was, like he said one thing, and then, oh, let me start again. And he said another thing, let me start again, the third try. And then he finally said, um, he said, well, actually, my advisors care much more about what the First Lady thinks than about what I think. And everybody in the room kind of laughed a little bit, but it was clear, especially as I did more reporting, that what he was saying was the truth. You know, Michelle Obama has high standards. She is, um, she is uh, the person who somehow holds people accountable. You know, one of his first campaign manager from back in Chicago once told me a story, which is that, um, you know, she didn't want him to run that first campaign for state senate, but when he was going to, she threw herself into it because she didn't want him to lose. And that's the pattern she goes into over and over again. And to get on the ballot in Chicago, you have to collect petition signatures, and they have to be valid. It can't say, you know, Donald Duck. So, so they were. So, so part of the project was to be out there collecting petition signatures, you know, for months and months on end. And the campaign manager said, if you said that you were going to get 300 petition signatures, you could not come back with 299 because you would face the wrath of Michelle. So. I think, and by the way, the, that woman was an African-American woman, so she wasn't doing a kind of like angry black woman thing on Michelle Obama. She was really saying part of the reason the president has been successful all of these years is that he has had this wife holding him and everybody around him to very high standards. Mm. She does come across as formidable. There's a great bit in the, you say in the acknowledgments uh, for women who, who said that you couldn't say that Michelle was anything less than perfect or her world would fall apart. Yeah, or the, there's a great video. Do you guys remember her trip to South Africa yeah. a couple of months ago? There were some very moving images and very funny ones. She got down on the floor and did push-ups with 
Archbishop Be mm -hmm. uh, Desmond Tutu. Mm -hmm. But so there's there's like video or, or tape of her going through a museum, like maybe Rob, I can't remember if it was Robben Island or one of, mm -hmm. a, an important museum in South Africa, and her kids are with her, and, and she's saying to her kids, you will be tested on this later. <laughs> you know, so she, so, you know, so there's, there's that, you know, there's that, it's like the president competing in, you know, all these sports all weekend. These are the part of the reason they got to be president and first lady mm -hmm. is that they really don't let up. Mm, yeah. It, that's in, that part is incredible. I mean, how they, as you're saying that they don't um, that that you know it's always on in that sense. It always is on message, even if they don't know what the message is. In a in a larger sense, that that they are this team who are you know going to be do, you know doing this project that they don't party and they don't you know they don't slip up and they don't say stupid things and they're really really controlled. I think is the word that I'm. And there's something about the striver in that, yeah, right? I yeah. mean, there's something about the outsiders from modest backgrounds mm -hmm. who worked really hard to get where they are and are so disciplined, yeah, right? And yeah. so hardworking that they didn't just become sort of regular successful people. They yeah. became some of the most successful people in the world, and yet, um, and yet, maintain that intensity. Okay, prediction time. <laughs> Is he going to face Romney or Gingrich? You know, everybody's asked me that here this week, and honestly, I mean, I have, and you know, I've discussed this with my colleagues back home, and I think political reporters in the states, we've all made a pact not to predict because it's just, we all feel that the race is too unstable. It's moving too fast. I mean, for months we've been saying, oh my God, you know, what crazy thing could happen? <laughs> back in the time of Herman Cain, we were saying, whoa, this race is so volatile. And it's only gotten more volatile. And I think, you know, to me, the evidence of this is what happened with Romney, with the revelations about Romney's offshore mm. tax accounts. Today, right? yeah, yeah, I mean, just in the last few days, yeah. because, I, it's interesting, and to me, it's a real lesson of reporting, right? Because you you could say, oh, Mitt Romney, he was governor of Massachusetts. He ran his second run for president. The guy has totally been vetted. There's like nothing new on him. Well, <laughs> who knew? Uh, you know, who knew? Twelve percent tax bracket. <laughs> right, and and also we you know we were talking about this yesterday. I think that that you know that that four or eight or 12 years ago, it might not have been mattered. Mm -hmm. It might not have mattered because Americans, I think, have always admired people mm -hmm. who were very successful and there's been a certain respect for people who made a lot of money, but things have really changed and, you know, and, and the, the feeling of public anger towards very wealthy people who, and Romney didn't do anything illegal, but, you know, very wealthy people who summed, who, who kind of, you know, have the fancy lawyers and accountants, right, to set up that, who kind of don't play by the rules that everybody else plays, that that anger is really profound. There's a lot of that anger here, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely, and people have been talking about that. Um, so I just want to invite you to, to tell my other favorite story from the book, and then I'll, and then I'll turn it over to the floor, which is, uh, I think, also in your acknowledgments, but it's such a great story about, I think it was on the campaign trail, uh, when an aide called you up at 7 o'clock at night, and you had just gotten home with your daughter. Yeah. Well, okay, so this is a... Just to give you, like, to contextualize the White House reaction to this book, this is a White House and a team that yells at reporters a lot and has been doing it for a really long time. And I know that it doesn't totally resolve with, like, the kind of public image of the president and first lady who, in, you know, even in the White House, there are so few stories of either of them being 
kind of rude and abrasive with other people, but they have they do have a very combative relationship with the press and their aides do, and it was definitely true during the campaign. So. Um, and I didn't get yelled at nearly as much as some of my colleagues, but one night um, I was coming home, and I was a new mother during the campaign, so that was an interesting adventure, and I came home at like 7 o'clock, and we had a story going in the paper the next day, and there wasn't, they had seen an early version of it because it was in the, the IHT, you know, closes earlier than the U.S. edition does, and there was something we were going to improve. It wasn't even wrong, but it was something we had already thought to make clearer in the story. They wanted us to make it clearer, but instead of just saying, oh, good, could you clarify that? They like, you know, they call and yell at you. So I had just gotten back to my apartment, and my daughter was then two years old, and she was sitting on my lap, and this guy from the campaign calls me and there's this like invective, you know, coming through the phone and it's so loud. And my daughter was sitting on my lap and she picked up the phone and she starts singing the Barney song that goes, <laughs> that goes, I love you, you love me. And it was just this complete sort of non sequitur moment. But also this moment where as a political reporter, I felt that my two-year-old was somehow protecting me in the most surprising but effective possible way against kind of the nastiness, right? of the political sphere, and uh, you know, I've, I've tortured that aide uh, <laughs> about that story for years because later after election night, he admitted that it was kind of embarrassing that you know a two-year-old uh, 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 kind of shut him up on the phone. <laughs> um, uh, but it, but I think it does. I think it does say something about the political climate and the way people react to it, and also, I mean, that you know, Robert Gibbs's blow up has gotten a lot of attention. Mm. I mean, he, he said a terrible thing in a meeting. He said, you know, F her about the First Lady. But I think it's just important to remember that this is a world in which, uh, like, almost nobody remains calm. You know, they, this is, this is, this is, um, this is an extremely heated environment. Mm. Well, I'm sure that everybody has lots of questions and that we will not have an extremely heated environment, but well, maybe not sing the Barney song, but that it will all um, stay, stay civil and British. Um, but I would also uh, remind everyone that there are lots of people here. I'm sure everybody would like to have a chance. So please try to keep your comments or questions uh, brief and to the point. And, uh, and that way we'll get, have lots of people have the, have the chance to, uh, to ask Jody for her thoughts. So who would like to begin? There's a gentleman there in the back. Hi there. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm a college editor from the States doing a junior year abroad. I'll be an editor again next year. And I think a lot of the criticism about your book has come about the reporting. And my question is more on the fundamentals of reporting. You were mm -hmm. an editor for the New York Times. What do you think of a book on a couple where you only interviewed them once well, I've but for the magazine? Well, I've interviewed the Obamas several times over the years, and um, I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, you know, I, there's a whole list of prize-winning books, you know, biographies and pieces of journalism that have been written about people without the reporter ever talking to the subject. Like, Bob Woodward wrote a lot about Dick Cheney, and Cheney, to my knowledge, I have to check this, but I'm pretty sure he, he never gave him an interview um, at all. And so I think that's a really good example of the way you can't practice access journalism. You know, and what I mean by that is that 
you know, one attitude you can have, and this is like the way TV reporters, you know, sometimes function, because in the TV world, um, it's all about the get, right? It's all about Diane Sawyer getting to sit down with, you know, whoever, whoever. Um, but in the world of print journalism, where I come from, we never say, I'm only going to do the story if so-and-so will talk to me. Um, first of all, because that gives them control of the story, which, you know, the New York Times never wants to do. Second of all, because access is disappearing in politics. President and presidents and first ladies give very few interviews and they almost never give, you know, kind of full searching, you know, meditative uh, interviews, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, if we only wrote stories when we could interview them, we would never write about them. You know, my colleagues who cover the White House day to day from the New York Times, uh, you know, and this is a team of, it's ranged between like three and four people. Um, they, they are, you know, they are the people who cover Barack Obama day to day. Guess how many times they've sat down with him? Once. Once. And so we just can't predicate our journalism on interviews because they, they could never happen. You know, I thought what was interesting was the way when the White House was arguing that I felt they were trying to take, in a way, one of the things you do when you attack somebody in politics is that you take a strength and you try to make it a weakness. And this book has a lot of reportorial strength. First of all, the White House cooperated with the book. Second of all, I did sit down with the president and first lady to talk uh, with them for 37 minutes and 11 seconds, because I've checked the tape, uh, with them about their marriage in the Oval Office, which is an interview, uh, frankly, I was lucky to get, you know, and, and something that helped this project uh, and really aided my understanding of them. And third of all, um, look at how much material in this book is on the record, right, and is not, you know, sort of, you know, background hearsay, the way some White House uh, reporting is. And so... Um, uh, you know, and also the, remember that the editors of the Times read the book, you know, before it was published and decided to excerpt it. So I'm pretty confident about the strength of the reporting. Can I, can I actually just add something? Because yeah. the, I, I was watching a little bit of the Piers Morgan interview that you did, and he asked, um, he was asking about this, and, and he said, you know, and I thought he was pretty sympathetic about the way he couched the question, but the way he put the question was he said something like, well, um, you know, but don't you worry that if you only talk to other people that they might have agendas and access to grind? And I found I was, you know, wanting to shout at the screen and go, but what, the first lady is agendaless? You know, so if you interview her that you're going to get the truth, um, as if she she has no, she has no uh, need to, you know, she's a blank slate and she'll just tell you everything. This incredibly intelligent, formidable woman is just going to let you know anything that you need to know. Right. So is there, there has been this kind of false opposition set up as if that right. would be the truth. And if you talk to other people, it's false. But as we all know, you learn more often about people, you know, you probably learn a lot more about me talking to the people who know me well than you would if you asked me questions about myself. Well, not only that, but, you know, but remember that political memoirs are getting you know, more political. Look mm. at the memoir that George W. Bush recently published. I mean, that memoir was widely criticized mm. for not being a deep reckoning with mm. some of the really controversial decisions he made as president. Even look at Hillary Clinton. I mean, Living mm. History is a book that I enjoyed. Do I feel that it 
you know, takes us deeply inside uh, her experience? Absolutely not. You know, that is a book written by somebody who wanted a future in politics and chose to play it pretty safe. So it's not like you know, all memoirs are in some way political. So it's not like we can just wait around for 10 or 20 years and we're going to get the full unbridled mm -hmm. answer, you know, on everything the that happened. The truth with a capital T. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Other questions? Uh, there's a gentleman at the back who I saw first and then a lady at the back. Um, yes, earlier you mentioned uh, Secretary of State Clinton's quip about not being invited to the White House for dinner, and I find that quite interesting. Do you feel that perhaps the Obama's reluctance to use former President Clinton or other well-liked political assets in the U.S. as a reflection of that deeper hesitancy to jump into this politics-as-usual game that you were referencing? Well, the, the Obama-Clinton relationship is particularly complicated, and um, you know, the president and the secretary of state obviously have, you know, a kind of close working relationship. A lot of people describe it as, you know, the relationship of kind of two people on their best behavior. But in some ways, the, the really interesting um, uh, contrast is between Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, who have never been close and, you know, almost seem to be living rebukes to each other. I mean, look at Obama's discipline and how that <laughs> contrasts, right, with Bill Clinton's lack of discipline. And yet, look at and yet look at Clinton's campaigning skills and look at his ability to speak to the economic moment and to capture white working class votes which have always eluded Obama and the, you know these two men are kind of living counterpoints um, to each other and so one thing you know and, and their, their dynamic is so complicated like I have no doubt that Bill Clinton will campaign his heart out for Barack Obama in 2012 because part of the complexity of their relationship and we saw this with a new book that Bill Clinton published a few months ago, is that it's almost like Bill Clinton thinks he can tell the Obama story better than Obama. <laughs> Who else? Um, watching the Romney-Gingrich race, it seems quite interesting how Romney seems really frightened of the press and Gingrich, no matter what he says, seems to love them. And it strikes me that Obama seems more like Romney in that way, that he's much more cautious of not being matey with the press, not being too... Friendly, and I wondered, as a White House journalist, how you and your colleagues have responded to having a president who never seems to want to kind of be friendly and off the record with journalists, and how much harder that makes not only the book but your job before that. Well, it's interesting, you know, the New York Times has a rule against speaking to presidents off the record. I mean, uh, uh, it's it's something, and it's true of. of it's pretty true of candidates too and it's because we don't want to be in a position where we can't share information with readers we really feel that our obligation is to you guys as readers and you know the, the sort of worst you know cliche of Washington journalism you could be is the journalist who is telling cool off the record you know stories at dinner parties about something the president said to you and yet not really sharing that um, in your uh, in your reporting but I think that um, I think that you're getting at something really important about Obama which is um, you know it's interesting because a couple of times over the course of the presidency he has recognized that his relationship with the press went in the wrong direction and he's expressed a desire to reset it and he has he has really never been able to 
And part of what comes through with him is a kind of contempt for the press. Like when, um, when he came to the briefing room to talk about his birth certificate last spring, he was extremely derisive um, about the fact that White House reporters were covering the birth certificate issue. And what he didn't, I don't know if he didn't seem to understand or if this just wasn't important to him, but a lot of reporters were covering that story in order to debunk the false claims and in order to be irresponsible. And yet he you know, essentially delivered a lecture to them about kind of how silly uh, they were. So it's a pretty difficult, I would be really surprised if that relationship gets uh, much better, uh, however long he's president. Uh, there's a woman there that I saw, and then the woman there at the back. I think among a lot of people I've talked to, there's this idea now that Obama has moved from like the campaign that was like really energetic and inspiring to almost this idea that Obama has done nothing in office. Do you think this is a problem with like you're talking about like his communication, his inability to form a message, the idea of like advisors in disarray or his refusal almost to engage in the Clintonian politics of rubbing elbows and talking? Well, I, I mean, I definitely, I, the, the idea that he's accomplished nothing, I think, is, is completely, completely wrong. His legislative accomplishments are enormous. You know, health care is still kind of an open question because we don't know where that's going to end up. But, but obviously, moving that through was huge. I mean, bin Laden, you know, the usual list of accomplishments that they cite. And I would say there are accomplishments beyond that as well. I mean, I do think that kind of figuring out how to be the first African-American president and first lady is a significant accomplishment. There are foreign policy issues that are relatively obscure, um, that don't get a lot of attention, that they've made a lot of um, progress on. You know, I'd also say the fact that this administration has remained pretty clean, you know, and has been pretty scandal free is, uh, is, is not, you know, is not something that he's ever going to get credit for, but I think a strength, I mean, there's the Solyndra thing, which uh, has obviously been questionable, but in the scheme of things, by the sort of history of recent Washington administrations, you know, the, the record's pretty clean. But I do think that part of what you're talking about goes to the fact that, you know, in a presidency, often a president's greatest strengths become his greatest liabilities. And one of Obama's greatest strengths in 2008 was the hope and inspiration and energy that he inspired. And I've really found in talking to supporters over the last couple of years that it's almost that because the high was so high, the sense of disappointment and letdown is much greater. Um, and you know that at the end of the book, there's a scene where a supporter asks him essentially what's happened to the Barack Obama of 2008, and and he's at a donor, he's at a dinner, he's at a, it's a friendly crowd, he's at a dinner with a lot of people who have given a lot of money to his campaign, and then the the really crushing thing is that people start to applaud, you know, and so he goes back to the White House and uh, discusses the question with advisors, and it's clear that he's pretty stung by it. Hi, Jody. Thank you for coming to speak to us. I studied gender development and globalization at the um, LSE, so I have a very biased question. Um, <laughs> it doesn't just, mean you're biased because you study gender development. No, my, my question is biased. Okay. <laughs> my question is uh, the fact that uh, Michelle Obama was the first first lady who was the prime 
breadwinner of the family, do you think that had any effect on their marriage? I don't think that's true because Hillary Clinton supported her family at the Rose Law Firm in Arkansas for years and years. Um, uh, but 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 anyway, um, uh, that is. I think it goes to the kind of balance of power, right, in the Obama relationship, and and that you know one of the significant facts of their partnership was that when they when they met at that law firm in Chicago, she was actually his superior. So this is you know so for to be first lady is to be almost by definition a subordinate to the president, and that's not. That's not the way they started out. Thank you. Um, the man at the back and then this woman at the front. Um, so this is also a question about sort of being a journalist among a bunch of other journalists covering the White House. Is that um, just over the last year, the uh, Republican primaries have just eaten up so much attention and that the because of the legislative uh, deadlock. It's very little for the for the White House to get anything of its own through, and that a lot of what the Republicans are doing right now is characterizing or mischaracterizing Obama. I was just wondering what your sort of the the your book, which is sort of a, a very full throated discussion of a White House that has been kind of out of the news, uh, did to the media landscape and to reorienting, sort of studying Obama as, as a really powerful and really central actor in relation to all of the circus that's going on around, around the Republicans. Oh, so let me just make sure I understand what you're asking. You're saying that so much attention has been on the Republicans lately that the White House has almost been a little bit out of the picture. And the, and the White House can't do a lot, given the fact that right. uh, you have a Senate and, and a House of Republican, uh, House of Representatives, rather, sorry, that, that aren't interested in doing anything. So, uh, and then, so tell me once more what your question is. So my, my question is, your book, which is uh, a full narrative account of the White House that's been kind of out of the news, I was just wondering what you felt that that did to change the media landscape or the uh, discussion in the country about about the White House. Huh. Well, I don't want to give my book too much credit because I'm not sure that this White House has ever really been out of the news. Uh, you know, they're sort of under constant scrutiny every day, and the White House generates a tremendous amount of news. But I do think, you know, that. Um, I do think, you know, I wrote the book because I wanted to answer questions that I did think would be on voters' minds uh, with 2012 coming up. I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of Americans in the room, uh, you know, who can vote in this next election. And I wanted to address the questions of, well, what happened, you know, to these two people? What happens when you put two pretty regular, I mean, like I said, very talented and ambitious, but regular people in the White House, what is the effect that power has on them? Um, you know, coming back to them for another election cycle, what are the ways that they've changed? What are the ways in which they've fulfilled their promises? Are we looking at two kind of different people um, heading into this election? And where does the Obama story go next? Good, I one question. Getting uh, back to the gender question a little bit, I remember, I'm not sure if it was before the election or after, but the president said that uh, if his wife is happy, 
he's happy and the family's happy. And I think that's really, I keep telling my husband this, you know, it's <laughs> me, me, me. No, but I was wondering also if you discovered anything that was really surprising. What was the most surprising thing you found after researching and talking to people and interviewing the Obamas? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, you know, I was really surprised when I discovered, I don't know if this is the most surprising thing, but I'll give you one thing that I was really surprised by. I was very surprised when I learned in the course of my reporting that Michelle Obama hesitated to move to the White House immediately, that she thought of staying in Chicago and finishing out the school year with her kids because the way it came out was just in like a conversation with one of her aides, you know, and it was a real example of how as a reporter, sometimes you're listening to somebody talk in a completely matter-of-fact way about stuff that's natural to them and yet is very surprising to you as a reporter and therefore, you know, you're really representative of everybody else to outsiders. and. This person said, like, well, you know, like, we really did, the way I think this person said it was, I think we really did the right thing by moving to the White House right after inauguration. And I was like, what? You know, and, and, I said, and, and after that, I went and discussed it with probably six or seven other people, because I wanted to make sure I completely had it right. Um, and to me, it... It, it, and that, that's, you know, that's, there's a scene at the beginning of the book of Mrs. Obama running into a friend in the park and discussing this, and that, that's the scene I chose to open the book with because I think it gives us insight into these people whose lives are kind of on the precipice, right, between their old world and their new one. And I, I think her hesitation says so much about her. And, and keep in mind, this is something that never happened, right? She, she decided to move after inauguration. But the fact that she considered it first really says that she is a very protective mother because, you know, her logic was not only would I have to take my kids out of school in the middle of the school year, but they'd be coming to Washington to a new school as the president's kids, you know? So think about how kind of child-centric her thinking is. I think that um, it shows how new she was to the presidency because, you know, come on, the nation was not going to tolerate the idea of like a commuter <laughs> first lady, right? And especially the, you know, the, a lot of the nation and a lot of the world was enthralled with the idea of the Obamas moving into the house of Jefferson and Kennedy. But, you know, I also think there's a kind of outsider wisdom to it that's very characteristic of Michelle Obama because she's often the first person to see problems. And she, you know, it, and, and I think that, that even though it probably wouldn't have worked, I, you know, once I really understood the nature of life in the White House and what they were getting themselves into, I think her hesitation is quite understandable. Well, there's one thing, I don't know if it's the first time this happened, but she brought a mother with her. Mm -hmm. Oh, her mother just really resists. Her mother does not want to be famous because. So be, oh yeah, she's Malia and Sasha's ticket to freedom. She's she's Malia and Sasha's ticket to freedom. Mrs. Robinson, this is Mrs. Obama's mother. I'll end on a funny note, which is that Oprah really wanted Mrs. Robinson to come on the show because I mean, you know, she really is kind of the most interesting story in the White House, right? This elderly woman who, you know, leads a pretty difficult life, ends up living in the White House. You know, the, the, she, she starts going on state visits with the Obamas. It's the first time she's ever been out of the country. Um, so Oprah wants to interview her about all this, and she declines. And she says, I just like 
slipping out of the White House gates and going up to the Filene's basement on Connecticut Avenue, and people there have no idea who I am. They think I'm just another person who works in the mansion, which means they think I'm a housekeeper. Hi. Do you uh, think the Obamas have given any thought to what their life will be after the White House? And if so, what sort of path do you think each one of them might take? Will they want to keep a high profile or maybe back off a little bit? Yeah. The Chicagoans are obsessed with that question. <laughs> uh, you know, whenever I'm in Chicago, I get asked that. And there's this, you know, are they going to come back here? Is Hawaii going to get the library? Um, the, um, the, the, yeah. I'm, like, I, I'm like, don't worry. I really think you guys are going to get the library. They worked we need at, the library. Well, they worked at, you know, the Obamas worked at University of Chicago for many years. So I would, I would say that institution has, uh, has some leverage. But um, the, um, uh, the thing that I think, well, I think it'll be a very different story, uh, depending on whether they leave uh, in one year or in five years, right? Because I think that if the president loses the 2012 election, that is really devastating because it, it is a bit of an invalidation mm -hmm. of the Obama project. You know, there, there's just no, he couldn't hold, the story will be that he could not hold on. Mm -hmm right to the excitement and enthusiasm and trust that he generated in 2008 which is part of why I think they're fighting so hard for it um, and so I think I you know so in that case he might and you know here we obviously don't know because uh, we're looking too far ahead but he, he might be motivated to try to do something big again right to to sort of change the story a bit um, but if he lasts longer you know, one of his friends told me a very telling story that I put at the end of the book, which said that, you know, Obama really looks po forward to the post-presidency because then he can, he can create real change because he'll be sort of beyond politics. And it's such an Obama thing to say, right, to think that if you just get to the next level, then you can create real change. But in a way, you know, there's no going back. Like, they went through this transition between 2004 and 2009 where, where their power and celebrity and the presidency changed every aspect, really, of their lives that we can see. And there's, there's no going back to being that regular couple from Chicago. You also say that after the presidency, he said the only two things he wants are a valet and a plane. Yeah. Which is not going to be a regular couple if he, right. if he hangs on to those. Um, there was a woman at the back there. Yeah. Hi. Um, I was wondering what you thought about um, publication of the book affecting your work as a political journalist. Are you planning to go back? And if so, would your relationships with the White House aides be different now? Um, I'm going back to the Times in a few weeks, and I'm going to cover the campaign. And you know, you know, like I said, this is a White House that has often had contentious relationships with reporters. And I think that my colleagues and I just always try to remain as professional as possible in the face of them. I mean, they could go on TV and say that you know I didn't pay my taxes. You know, they could say that I'm you know, running a math lab out of my six-year-old's <laughs> bedroom. I don't think they would ever say that, but I'm just giving you an extreme example. And I would really try to cover them in the most fair and professional way I know how. Uh, thanks, Eddie. 
Um, could you tell us a little about um, about what the Obamas do about outside the political realm? Um, do they still seek to be the to be the regular couple from Chicago now during the political uh, career, or what, what do they do outside? Do they even have a uh, chance to leverage their time to do something on the personal front? Well, you know, if you if you, if you read the book, you'll find a lot on that issue because the question of you know what time is really their own and how they can spend it is a really big one. Um, uh, the first lady certainly has more of it than the president does. The, the scene it reminds me of is um, their first uh, vacation back to Hawaii after winning the White House. Uh, you know, they they really wanted and needed a, a family vacation in Hawaii, and yet that was the Christmas when there was the attempted Nigerian. The, uh, bomber in Detroit, you know, with those explosives on the plane, which turned out to be a significant episode of, you know, attempted domestic terrorism. And so you'll see in the book there's this kind of scene that is a mashup of the president on the one hand trying to take a family vacation and then on the other hand trying to manage a national security incident. And it was very it was confusing and hard, and the kicker is that he, the rest of the family is going on a snorkeling trip, but he can't go because he's got to deal with this, and he finally gets to go snorkeling, and remember that this is Obama returning to the Hawaii of his youth, so he finally, you know, he finally, like, loses the suit and gets on his bathing suit and goes snorkeling, and not only do they clear the beach when the Obamas swim, and not only did they clear the water, but when the president went snorkeling, there was a ring of Secret Service agents around him wearing aquatic weapons. <laughs> and a political question for you. There's a YouTube clip going around of Obama singing Al Green mm -hmm. at a fundraiser in New York from a couple days ago. And when he sang the people in the audience went absolutely nuts. And he's so charismatic and comfortable, he sort of looks like a Kennedy or a Clinton. This compared to debate footage from South Carolina where people were booing Mitt Romney and Newt Gingrich. And does that make you bullish on 2012 for Obama, that there, he might have fewer supporters, but they're still, they still love him like an Apple product almost? Well, I think, I mean, remember that, you know, remember that almost nothing Remember that you know almost nothing the president does is not calculated to send some sort of message, and I think the clear reading of that Apollo clip was of you know him trying to be and being the loose, funny you know original Barack Obama of 2008, you know, and and trying to remind um, people of that. And I do think it set up a real um, contrast with the kind of tone of the Republican debate. Whether it holds greater meaning than that, um, I'm not sure. I think that's their hope. I mean, I think that, that their hope is that campaigning means connecting with people and getting out of the White House and being able to be you know, less of the kind of remote presidential figure that he's been and connecting better with voters. Mm -hmm. 
Sorry, I've been unfairly neglecting the balcony who I didn't see. There's a question up there. Uh, do you think he'll get another four more years? You know, again, I think it, it, it's just, it really is irresponsible to predict. It truly is because it is such, for two reasons, it's such an unstable race. And second of all, remember that American elections now are won by very small margins. You know, we're used to thinking of his 08 victory as a, you know, dramatic historic victory, but it was not a landslide. You know, if you look at the math, the margin was very, very small, and that's why I think it's, um, it, oh, and McCain was a weak candidate, mm. by the way, and so I think it's almost by definition too weak, too too close to call. Mm. So, one right there. What does, uh, what does President Obama think of David Cameron? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't, I couldn't give you a good read on that. I'll be honest, you know, I, um, I know that Michelle Obama and Sarah Brown had a particularly close and lovely relationship, and I actually ran into Sarah Brown once. Uh, we were in the same East Wing waiting room, and it was me, Sarah Brown, and Bo the dog, uh, and <laughs> the three of us hung out for a little bit. Um, but I could, and I certainly couldn't, I mean, I couldn't give you his, like, private personal opinion. You've been making reference to the fact that um, Obama has been trying to uh, cover this um, bipartisanship and to like be on both sides and not really um, succeeding with that. Do you think that in case that he's making it again in this um, election, that he's going to be, um, due to the fact that he's only getting, getting four years um, then to come, that he's um, going to get more aggressive on one side of the island and trying to, to break through this deadlock that he's been stuck in in, in many, uh, many issues? Well, you know, we don't really know what the plan is for his next four years. There was a really good political article about that today. They, he has not made there's sort of no clear roadmap and we don't know what to expect for him which is a little bit of a problem because I think Americans should you know will want uh, a lot more sort of meat on the bones in terms of definition and as a couple of people have mentioned he's very limited both by um, Republican control of the House of Representatives and by the economic climate um, so uh, so it's a very good question but it's not clear that getting more aggressive you know, what that would necessarily mean or whether it would produce results. I mean, the most powerful thing he could do, like, take take the climate bill, right? I mean, you guys know what happened, which is the, the administration basically half-passed a climate bill. You know, it made it through, it, made, it, it was a very tough vote and required a lot of political capital, and so it's kind of, you know, in, in political terms, it's a little bit of a waste because they used all that muscle to get it through the House and then it never made it through the Senate. And so, you know, I remember in an early kind of campaign appearance in April, Obama said, like, we're going to pass a climate bill. Well, that is very unlikely because, uh, you know, there are a lot of Republicans in the House who don't even believe in climate change. So, I, so in some ways, the only way he can do that is if he really moves public opinion, right? I mean, if he, if he took it to the country and if the public demanded it, and that would require you know, a, a, re a really huge act of presidential leadership and or, you know, people to independently, you know, come to their own conclusions. You know, maybe when the, you know, 
maybe when, you know, I mean, you saw the kind of natural disasters we've experienced in the United States, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the last year or two, it's possible that that will start to have an effect on public opinion. Do you ever see Michelle Obama doing a Hillary Clinton and becoming somebody in her own right? Oh, well, I think she's already somebody in her own right. Um, and, but I don't think she'll ever run for office, no. She, I mean, she, she really, you know, she is very clear about the fact that she's doing this for her husband, that she never wanted this life, and that campaigning and the, elect the electoral system is not sort of her preferred mode for making change. I wanted to ask about your and everyone else and everyone else in the White House um, press about the attitude to Sasha and Malia in the next four years because they already seem like an asset because they're so kind of they seem lovely and photogenic and everything. But as they get older, they're probably going to be more of a target. I'm thinking about the Bush girls and Chelsea Clinton and kind of cattier parts of the press. They kind of were more of a free for all. And I'm wondering if there's an agreement between the White House press and the Obamas about covering them as they become teenagers and kind of, I suppose, start seeing boys and going out and things like that? I, it would, it would um, I think it's going to remain the same. You'll see in the book that, um, you know, the story of the rules about covering Malia and Sasha, uh, it turns out that um, when the Obamas won the presidency, there were weeks of negotiations between Robert Gibbs, the press secretary, and TV network executives over um, how Malia and Sasha would be covered and what the rules were, et cetera, et cetera. And those rules will, will re remain, I think, in effect. And I, I don't think it will change with them getting older because there are different sensitivities at every age. I mean, when, you know, when they were really young, you could say, well, oh my God, they're so young, you know, they, they can't be covered. And then when, as you say, they're in their teenage years, you could say, whoa, that's a really sensitive time. You know, they, they shouldn't be covered. And I would be shocked if anybody who covers the president or first lady, you know, reported like, you know, Malia spotted out on a date you know, last night in Washington, it's just not done. Unexpectedly civilized. <laughs> yeah, it is one thing that, well, it's, it's not, I mean, you know, Glenn Beck has gone to town on Malia. I mean, when she's, when she, when the president said at the, at one of the press conferences about the oil spill that his daughter had come to him and said, Daddy, did you plug the hole yet? I mean, that, you know, he went off. He went. He he took that and ran with it, and did this kind of Malia impression. I think it was on the radio, but that's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. um, unless there's one more question, I think we're oh, there's one question at the balcony, and that will be our last. I just wanted to ask, uh, what do you think? How did uh, Mr. Obama felt accepting the Nobel Prize at such an early stage of his presidency? Well, you'll, you'll see the story in the book. Um, the White House was very um, unsure about how to handle it because they were really worried about the way it would look at home. And they really, um, they really limited uh, what they were going to do. Normally, if you're a Nobel winner, there's an almost comically long list of celebrations that you go to. I mean, people 
uh, there are you know meals and concerts and uh, you know people practically throw throw rose petals at your feet and there are very elaborate rituals and the White House kind of rejected most of those and, and kept things to a very you know sort of the main ceremony and a few other events. I think the Obamas were in Oslo for 26 hours and uh, you know the the people who had given him the prize I think were kind of disappointed uh, about that but. But what was also interesting to me about that episode was how eager in his speech Obama seemed to be to describe himself as a kind of historic figure. It was a time when his presidency was really beginning to get into trouble at home, and he seemed very comfortable, you know, kind of in the Oslo environment. And his friends and aides who were on the trip um, found it a welcome relief from American politics. They were really straight, you know, it was the kind of atmosphere where everybody had read Dreams from My Father and they knew a lot about healthcare reform. And, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, one of the friends said to another friend, you know, Obama could get 70 or 80% of the vote uh, outside the US. Mm-hmm. Well, if only we were holding the election here. That's my mm-hmm. partisanship showing. Um, uh, I think it, will, will, it remains to thank Jody in a, in a moment, but before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that the book, with all of these wonderful stories, um, and I think really some, uh, some real insight and, and as, as I said several times, some real surprises um, and, and a real sense of what life in the White House might, might actually be like, um, is available outside. The way this is going to work, um, Jody will stay to sign mm-hmm. uh, copies, but she's going to stay on the stage to sign the copies. So you mm-hmm. go out and get the book. And then, and then bring them back in here, which will help manage the queue. So um, that's where she'll be if you want to go outside and, and get a copy of the book. And it just remains to thank Jody again for, uh, for coming to talk to us. Thank you very much. I just wanted to say thank you to all of you and to Sarah as well for a fantastic conversation. And to LSE, which really did yes, an, yes. an unbelievable job LSE. of organizing uh, this you. event. And to you all for coming. We could have, a, we could have an applause to exactly. <laughs>